Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, four years after Brexit, just how is Britain faring outside the European Union? And how's the EU coping without Britain? On the 31st of January 2020, the UK made history when it became the first country to leave the European Union. It followed a hugely contentious referendum campaign when all sorts of promises were made by both sides as to a future inside and outside Europe. But four years on, what exactly has changed? Joining me now are Professor Amelia Hadfield, Dean International and Head of Politics at the University of Surrey, former British Minister for Europe, Dennis McShane, and former Chief of Staff to ex-Prime Minister David Cameron, Alex Dean. Thank you all for, for, for coming on the agenda. Now, look, we all know the Brexit journey was bumpy, and we can all agree with that, but let's take stock. You know, how has Brexit changed the UK's reputation as a place to do business, to, to invest in, to live in, to work in? Amelia, start with you. I think across those points, um, it's it's pretty undeniable that Brexit hasn't been a, a roaring success. I think we've seen a, a range of different kinds of impacts, some very immediate in the first uh, year or two after Brexit, and and some um, still still trucking on now. Um, it's it's been very difficult. I think particularly in in terms of trade. And here I think I I ought to mention the uh, GVA, the gross value added. That's a measure of the size uh, of the British economy. Um, and just to give you highlights on that, uh, as a result of Brexit, it's 100, approximately 140 billion pounds less in 2023 than it would have been uh, if the UK had opted uh, to remain in the customs union and the single market together. So that's a drop of about 6%. Um, I think if you squeeze that down to look at London, for example, uh, London's real GBA is uh, more than 30 billion pounds less again in, in 2023. So simply on the basis of trade, I think that's an enormous impact. Investment is is, is trickier to some extent, but the idea of a, a warm investment climate and, and a welcoming investment climate, I think, has also taken uh, a knock-on um, impact. I think we'll speak uh, later on about the impact this has had for Britain in terms of its foreign policy and relations more broadly. Alex, what do you think? Do you, do you think um, Brexit has damaged or improved the UK's reputation? Well, of course, if you judge Brexit by um, who people book to do talk shows, it's always two to one against. <laughs> if you judge it um, based on our uh, productive economy and if you judge it based on our performance vis-a-vis -vis our peers, I'd say it's good. People always like to say things like, well, GVA is down for the UK in 2023 compared to what it would have been. How on earth do you know, given we had COVID in between uh, the two uh, dates that people are thinking about? If I think about where our standing is, our ability, for example, to act decisively and early in support of Ukraine after Russia's invasion, when our European friends lagged way behind, is a good example of how Britain act well for the acts well for the world as an independent country. And of course, we had to fly sorties to help Ukraine around German airspace. So when the Europeans say they want to lead on foreign policy, it doesn't seem to be happening in my lifetime. Dennis, I can see you chuckling away in the background there. What are your thoughts? 
me on. I've written five books on Brexit. I speak French, German, Spanish. I patrol European capitals. And I see with my own eyes, my own children, my own friends, some of the negative aspects. It's not sort of Armageddon. That is silly. Germany now is spending more than the United States in terms of military aid to Ukraine. They're sending lots and lots of leopard tanks. We've got 140 Challenger tanks in store. We could go to Ukraine. We sent exactly 14. We sent ministers to do photo calls in Kiev. But Alex, uh, that is not going to worry Mr. Putin too too much. Just three little stories I just noticed before this interview, just this weekend. Firstly, a big one of all the delicatessen stores in Britain. There's shops just down for me. There's a Sicilian one, a Portuguese one where I live in London. They're now, because of new British rules, delaying and blocking the import of animal products, i.e. sausages, cheeses, um, things that we love in our continental delicatessens. A lot are going to have to close down because they can't afford the paperwork the European export certificates. All of this is just microeconomics. We can't travel there. Story in the Daily Mail yesterday of a lady complaining that she had great difficulties getting the right to live in France all the year round. But she voted for Brexit. She's a British citizen. And we don't have those rights anymore to live all the year round in, in Europe. Uh, and then finally, there's a slightly sort of bigger story to do indeed with trade. Uh, and that is... Uh, that there is a lowering of investment. Certainly as a foreign policy wallop or you can see that I specialise in the, in the Western Balkans. Britain has no voice down there because what matters in the Western Balkans is what's decided in Brussels, in EU capitals and in Washington. And I'm afraid we were powerful in there. Tony Blair led the coalition that got rid of Milosevic, brought an, unhappy, an unstable peace, but at least stopped the violence in the Balkans. And now, frankly, we're completely out of the game. Alex, do you think we're completely out of the game? I mean, is it just you know hard no. cheese for all of these delicatessens? No, I mean, it's a pretty a charmingly rambling uh, position that goes from anecdote to anecdote. But we're in a time now where the Houthi rebels, at the time of recording uh, this show, are attacking uh, commercial shipping in uh, the Red Sea, uh, has a material impact far beyond the kind of sausage or cheese issue that uh, Dennis was talking about. It impacts global supply chains. Britain acted immediately, and uh, neither Germany, nor Italy, nor France, nor Spain uh, took part to assist in stopping one of the mo world's most significant terrorist uh, activities. Hello, Dennis. Thanks for waiting. Uh, one of the most significant terrorist uh, activities in our time. Now, it may be that eventually uh, the Europeans come about uh, to act, but it does seem, uh, again, that uh, Britain's ability to operate independent uh, of the European Union is a significant one. And when you want to talk about money, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. The Europeans just borrowed 800 billion euros. Britain's uh, contribution or debt for, for that, of course, we were always a contributor uh, nation by one year of our membership. We gave more than we received uh, financially. Britain's liability for that now that we're not in the EU is zero. But people like to talk about um, uh, processed meat. Amelia, would things be better or worse if the UK had remained inside the European Union? No, undoubtedly better. I'm, I'm quite sure of it. And, and, and I don't think it's easy, you know, to be able to point to the to the, to the to the winning aspects of Brexit in many many ways, but I I'm really interested in the the difference, if you like, between 
the EU's rebound, actually, and UK stagnation. I think that differential is, is, is very, very important as well. And I'm sorry, you can't take, you know, swipes at things like cheese. Food is a massive, massive um, aspect of what the uh, British economy is made up of. So is beverages and tobaccos and chemicals and, and uh, material manufacturers. Uh, these, are, these are huge areas. Um, and the UK has missed out uh, on, on, on a big rise uh, in European trade as a result of the border costs that Brexit has imposed. Um, let to say nothing, I think, of a lot of other items like medical equipment, where we had a, you know, a prodigious advantage, uh, sporting goods, toys, office supplies. These are the types of goods produced by the smaller guys, by the medium uh, and, and small firms. These have really struggled the most, I think, with the border costs uh, imposed by Brexit. So UK exports in, in those particular categories to the EU have, have declined by 30 percent. That's that's just ripping out the bottom of those sorts of industries. While the intra-EU to EU trade, which is very, very interesting, that's that's been pretty good. That's grown by a healthy 9%. So, you know, back to the question of the impact, it's very material and it's certainly bound to roll on. Alex, Story, it's very material. There is, this is becoming a point, if it wasn't already, a pointless debate in which people cherry pick the things that they uh, care about. And completely, I mean, Germany is in recession. Britain's growth is more significant than anyone in the G7 bar the Americans, possibly the Canadians, but you'll note neither of them are in Europe. And, and so people prefer to, to talk about Europe's rebound and Britain's stagnation. It's, at, it's got to the point where the exchange becomes useless. Because if people are going to assert whatever they like, it's no longer even just a disagreement over um, economic statistics. It's taking a position which is no longer justifiable and dressing it up as a as a pseudo academic or a, a pseudo profound. I don't one. think and, a total point, goods exports no of thirteen point five percent is cherry picking thirteen point four billion on a quarterly quarterly basis. Yeah, Ger Germany's in recession and Britain isn't. Did you know that that's 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 the example you want to point to? Well, as every commentator says, I mean, Germany certainly is going through a dip at the moment. There are big, big farmer strikes in, in France. They're proposing to surround Paris with tractors and all the rest of it. Just as we had great fuel drivers strikes, we've had the longest strike wave of transport and health ever in our history. I don't think actually it's related to Brexit. No, no, no. Talking about well, any more than Germany being in the EU is giving it a temporary dip, but most economists and most public health care workers and most professionals and most workers would give anything to be employed and living under German standards of life or Dutch or yeah. also. So, so let's talk about people. Let's talk about that workforce, Dennis, because London's mayor has called for young people to be able to move freely um, to and from the EU as people in the UK were able to before Brexit. That's going to lessen, he says, the cultural and, and the economic damage caused by that decision. What do you think that that cultural as well as um, economic damage has been by restricting people's movements? Very simply, we've denied all of our children the right to take part in Erasmus. Those were very simple, low-level things for school leavers to go do another year in another country. I don't think we've got a single member of the cabinet now that speaks uh, a European language. I'm not sure we have in the opposition as well. I mean, I'm not just making a Tory point here. We've completely internalised, become inward-looking, uh, and so we're just losing touch uh, in so many ways. We've been forced to rejoin uh, Horizon, that's the big scientific programme, but it still puts huge barriers to any European academic coming here. 
Alex, I want to talk to you about, about the, the outlook for, for, for UK jobs. I mean, there was this independent study by Cambridge Econometrics. It showed that London has 250,000 fewer jobs than if Brexit had not happened, with half of the total 2 million job losses nationwide coming from the financial services sector and the construction sector. What are you talking sector. about? What are you talking I mean, about? This is an today. independent study. So what's your outlook for jobs? Is it short-term pain for long-term gain? More people went to work in the United Kingdom this morning than have ever gone to work in Britain in the history of our country. You're talking about theoretical job losses when the workforce is larger than ever. There are still more jobs in the city than there were before we left the European Union. And the British work labour force is at an all-time high. When you claim there are two million, you said just said there were two million absent jobs. British labour force is larger than it's ever been. What is the point now of this conversation? And to have you know, smirkingly uh, wry commentators who seem with your agreement, saying I should get my head out of my sandpit. It's no longer a meaningful discourse. To be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from a recent independent study by Cambridge Econometrics. It's a respected institution. I'm, I'm not pulling um, figures out of out of thin air. Is, is Britain, does Britain now have a larger workforce than it ever has before or not? Every country has. I mean, in America it's far bigger. But how can you claim there are fewer jobs? It's, it's just ridiculous. Well, go up to Rotherham. Go up to I, know, I, know, I know, Dennis, it wasn't your claim. Go, go up to Liverpool, and there's a pay they're getting, the fact that so many have to be on benefits, the fact that so many have to, even in rich London, where I'm speaking from, SW1, there's a food bank down the road, because the people who live on the council flat, social housing behind them, can't get decent paid jobs. Now, that's part of the difficulty, and I just think we should all be a bit more moderate and modest. We're not going back. I mean, it's, 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 the way Alex is going on is if he's facing, oh, I'm going to have to sort of go and work and live in Europe again. No, we're not going back. There, no, there comes, there comes, I'm sorry, there comes a point where between impressions of what I'm apparently like and t saying I should get out of my sandpit, this is no longer a productive conversation. Well, I'm sorry, if you're not prepared to take strong riposts... OK, Alex, Alex, OK, then, OK, then let's... Let's put it right and tell us why you think the UK is now more attractive in terms of investment, in terms of luring foreign investors. Because when I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm seeing that you know China's BYD, the world's largest seller of electric and hybrid cars, is, is ruling out its first European factory in the UK because of Brexit. When we are reading and hearing about stories like that, you're thinking, OK, um, what is making us an attractive proposition as a nation? The same people, I don't know about your position, but I certainly about, know about Dennis's and I imagine I can guess the professors. The same people who told us we'd have half a million unemployed and a immediate recession if we dare to leave the European Union hung their arguments, at least in part, on the fact that industries like car manufacturing would collapse. We're making more cars in the United Kingdom. The kind of point people don't seem to care about because they can say X manufacturer has said they won't invest. We did three rounds of ping pong with major manufacturers like that in the United Kingdom. They're still here and they're still making uh, cars. People made claims about huge numbers amounts of unemployment there are more jobs in this country than ever it, it, it's it's got to the point i'm afraid where uh, people are seeking to talk down the united kingdom so that they can be right uh, rather than see their country do well and they work their arguments and past positions will be wrong they do it shamelessly and then they do it 
it's quite smugly because it seems that that's the only conversation they have around their dinner party uh, conversation. Amelia, I think Amelia needs to, to have her say and talk about the, the impact of, of foreign investment. Um, did Absolutely. you agree with, I'd like, go on. I'd like to talk up the UK actually because it's, 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 I think it's a more realistic proposition, particularly in terms of foreign policy, but I think we have to do it reasonably on the, on the basis of things like ONS, which is probably where the employability stats uh, were drawn from, from the Cambridge Econometrics. I've read that report. It, it, it's just entirely reasonable to me. If we could talk about a couple of service areas, perhaps this will help break it down a bit. So telecoms and IT, uh, insurance, which Britain's very, very well known for, pensions, all of the sort of business services, if you like. These are series um, that contain consultancy and accounting and legal services. They've actually grown really fast. They have um, grown faster in the UK uh, um, than the average of advanced economies uh, since Brexit. So excellent, great. You know, there's 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 an area of, of benefit. Perhaps we can see ways in which in the next two, five, ten years you might be able to stagger uh, increased investment climate. But others have not. So the financial services they have grown more weakly uh, in the UK than elsewhere uh, since the start of 2020, um, uh, when many financial services uh, companies based in the UK started setting up operations in the EU. And I think probably quite rightly they they knew which side the of the uh, bread their butter was on. The other is transport services, and and this is really tricky because in in many ways. Is the, the you know the sinews between us and the European Union? That's the category that, of course, contains road haulage, road haulage and, and shipping, um, like financial services. Uh, growth in British exports of transport services are are they're well down. They're well down um, in in comparison to other advanced economies, and that's probably because Britain's uh, goods exports to the EU obviously have been hit. That in turn reduces demand for a British lorry driver services, and it's tricky for the British lorry drivers because they can't do what's cabotage uh, within the EU. They can't move uh, goods between member states. So you know, there's a credible call at this point to talk about the relationships going forward between the UK and the EU, and the time is is now because this is the year 2024 where we need to get our ducks in a row to look again at the trade and cooperation agreement which is due for renegotiation in in 2025 um so this is a way in which to look at um reclaiming and recalibrating and strengthening the relationship between the uk and the european union in key areas like trade in goods and services and investment um and possibly more widely in terms of of, of, of foreign policy and it's it's true to say that i think britain has demonstrated very real leadership around the world in key areas and ukraine's a good one but it's also lost areas of 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 very real uh respect and trust and confidence i think it's still working very hard to get past the diplomatic brexit bruises if i can call it that particularly in the unsc and, and, and particularly other areas, perhaps like like yeah. the Commonwealth. So it's it's a it's a living process, and yeah. and we're we're going to be able to see how that goes and translates in the next two and five years. But it's a long one. It's definitely a long term one. We'll pause there for a moment, but stay with us. As still to come here on this Agenda Brexit special, AI and Brexit. Can the UK go its own way with artificial intelligence? wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the agenda. More now on the four-year fallout from Brexit with our panel, Professor Amelia Hadfield, 
Dean International and Head of Politics at the University of Surrey, former British Minister for Europe, Dennis McShane, and former Chief of Staff to ex-Prime Minister David Cameron, Alex Dean. So let's talk about moving forward, as you talked about some diplomacy, and one area that maybe we can all agree, it seems to be one where nations tend to agree more on, or it's a starting point, is climate change. So Alex, let's talk about the, the green transition. His experts say the UK is quietly diverging from EU environmental law, and in some areas there's a bit of a danger of the UK going backwards. I mean, the Environment Secretary, though, Steve Barclay, says Brexit gives us more freedom. So what is really going on here? Britain has, has uh, produced a more of an emissions reduction, halved our emissions uh, from the, from the 20, uh, 2010 numbers, has halved our emissions. And, and all global observers agree that Britain is the developed economy that's done the most to reduce our emissions. The UK signed up to EU environmental standards and goals and is kind of doing its own thing. Is that um, because of Brexit? Does it matter? Should, are you saying that the, U the UK is going faster and that the EU should catch up? What we're trying Britain's to establish the, here is how Brexit has benefited not just the UK economy, but all of these challenges that, that we're facing. Yes, but along the way, I think you've got to... Um, you've got to base your conversation not on I heard somewhere that somebody reckoned Britain was doing badly because they weren't in the EU. Professor Hagler had a completely reasonable point. We left a club. Some people won't like it. It's a bruising process and it's a long-term one. But Britain was the first G7 country to halve its carbon uh, emissions. And um, yeah, that's less than half the 652 uh, million uh, tonne uh, peak in, from 1970. And in the last 11 years, our annual emissions have dropped uh, significantly again, uh, some 35% down. So emissions by sector are down in, in the United Kingdom. Our Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit uh, suggests we've cut our total greenhouse gas emissions by over 40% uh, from the 1990 peak. I mean, why on earth would you suggest Britain's going backwards? We are the number one performing economy on the G20 in cutting emissions. Well, that's probably doesn't quite explain why a coroner gave air pollution as a cause of death of a four-year-old girl in London. The air in a case, air quality in London is better than it's ever been. Um, Amelia, maybe you can help me with, with this one. You know, given that AI is the foundational future of, of everything, um, last year the head of Facebook said that because of Brexit, the UK can go its own way on AI, um, and the UK's lighter touch approach than the EU's um, tougher stance in terms of regulation makes it more attractive, more attractive to internet companies and to investors. So, do you think that the UK has the potential to do it better? I think there there was a part of the Brexit narrative that suggested uh, that the sort of offshore quality um, of of Britain was going to be really comprehensively reaped, the sort of offshore Singapore or Hong Kong, if you like. And this has to do with the, the tightness with which the UK was going to be linked in or not uh, to the EU's regulatory framework. And, you know, to some extent, there's, there, there's a sense that if you are devoid of all of the links uh, with the European Union in terms of laws and directives and regulations, yes, I mean, you can forge your own way. Interestingly, in climate change, and I'll just come back to this, it hasn't prevented the current government um, from U-turning on, on, on a number of things, and it might do so temporarily, but it's still at this point in the slipstream of expectations by the United Nations. We're all going to have to abide by these, and these are increasingly stringent. And it's also good, it's going to have to work with its largest continental partner, the European Union. So I think you can, you can tweak with some of the regulatory edges, if you like. AI is another very, very good example. Um, it might be able to shift in terms of the investment climate and the 
about some aspects of the the way in which it wants to develop, invest, and possibly regulate AI in the UK. But ultimately, this is an absolutely enormous area, and it will be dominated by the people who write the rules. And at that point, that's the United States on the one side, European Union in the middle, and increasingly China. So the UK is is not a large enough market to be able to dominate the rulemaking. So it will have to find out what makes the most sense to AI development domestically, and you know pitch its uh, pitch its wagon behind any of those available three stars. Let's put it like that. I think Professor Hatfield has a completely reasonable point about not taking advantage of the opportunities posed by being able to frame your own regulator environment. And um, we did uh, think coming into the Brexit process that Britain would take more use of its independent status to uh, diverge and have different regulations. And largely speaking, so far, that hasn't happened. In most fields, uh, Britain hasn't uh, put in place its own uh, new rules in a way one might have imagined an independent country uh, would do. And I think that, um, so first of all, I think that's fair. But secondly, I think that there is a significant risk that, um, you know, we don't need the European Union to make mistakes. Britain can do it all all on our own. And it may be that we uh, overcompensate, gold plate, uh, impose additional regulation. There is as much instinct in this country to uh, regulate and impose new rules as there is to deregulate and to free up markets. So um, whilst we haven't really seen significant uh, uh, new rules on AI in any market yet, my concern would be that Britain becomes a market leader in trying to strangle too much rather than the other way around. Alex Dean, Amelia Hadfield, Dennis McShane, thank you all very much. Coming up on a future agenda, why tech innovation is the key to the future of net zero industries, an exclusive panel from the recent World Economic Forum gathering in Davos. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the agenda team here in London, goodbye.